Good. I think they will come. Mm -hmm. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. We talked this morning already about traveling and I said how difficult it is sometimes for me to leave my farm and whenever I have to go on a trip it, it starts hurting and I feel like I should not go. And then it's like tearing myself away from the land and yeah. but at the same time it's the most necessary thing to do. And I very much know by logic that once I'm away and I meet other people and I'm with other people then I really enjoy it and I return with enrichment. So I need invitations, I need to realize that somebody pulls on the other side otherwise we would not be sharing. We need to share. And this especially today as Times have become extremely difficult and uh, many menacing things are occurring in the world all over. It's hard to say nowadays what are the biggest menaces because there are so many. One of my very best friends uh, a year ago escaped the fires of California where the forest was burning to the degree that she woke up at night and her whole town was burning and she jumped into her car in her pyjama, took her old mother along and they managed to drive out through the fire. And the next day when they returned to the community there was nothing left in the community. All the houses were 100% burnt. Not only the forest was gone, the houses were gone. And they decided to go to Oregon, to the biggest forest area in the United States. And nowadays it's not even in the news anymore. But the worst imaginable thing happened, now Oregon is burning also. The biggest forests in the United States are burning. I met two people from Oregon a few weeks ago and they said that ironically, especially the parts of the community where these people from California settled is already being menaced by fire. This is apocalyptic. Yeah, this is really incredible. It's not even mentioned anymore. We are facing the destruction of forests, of communities, cities in the vicinity of the forests. And we are beginning to face the destruction of humanhood. This has already become a real menace. It's become fashionable to, com to complain about the destruction of the Amazon. I heard a 
talk on a video a week ago by a Mexican who was complaining in this video that the Brazilians and the world should do something about not burning the Amazon. He did not even mention that in his own country, in his own region in Yucatan, only months before we had lost 10,000 hectares to fire. People don't mention that. It's always the other who is the bad one. Yeah? It's fashionable to complain about the Amazon, because everybody seems to agree on that, and it's in the news. It's not fashionable to say that in the United States there's poverty, there's misery, and the land is burning. It's not even fashionable to look in front of your door and see what's happening. So when you see all these things, and I don't even want to mention all the wars that are being fought and all the wars that are being prepared at the moment, to a degree that the war could at any time hit us here in Europe. Even though I believe Estonia is relatively safe, because nobody will have interest to throw any bombs on Estonia. But you have one of the biggest arms concentrations that we have ever seen in the world, right on the Russian border, here in Estonia, in Lithuania, in Latvia. It's it's an incredible time. How can humans behave that way? And in the end we have to come to that question, what's happening to humans? It's a human crisis, it's not a forest crisis. The forest will always survive. The forest has so many mechanisms to restore itself, to survive, to create new forests. But if we continue this way, then one day it will only be the forest and not man. We're destroying manhood. So when we talk about restoration, I will talk about forest, but I talk about forest in the sense of finding the way to again cooperate, coexist, with the forest, which is the deepest expression of the natural world, the deepest expression of how we can be in this world in a way that proliferates life instead of limiting and destroying life all the time. We have to talk about what liveliness is. In Spanish we call it vitalidad vitality uh, and I think I will start with a few definitions in the beginning so we don't get confused with some of the terms that uh, we will ev evidently have to use. Liveliness is an example. Yeah? There's a difference between liveliness and vitality. We need both, but it shows that there is always a more individual part or more individual aspect 
to these qualities and the more general, the more social aspect. We talked about livelihood or live liveliness. We talk about the very personal quality of somebody radiating life as a person. We talk about vital vitality. We talk about the more systematic aspect, the structural aspect. Uh, I use the term, for example, to create, to determine the communities we want to create. I want them to be vital communities. I want the structure of these communities to radiate vitality, to create vitality, so that people could live their liveliness within that structure. This leads us to the most difficult of all terms nowadays, I think, sustainability. We always say we want sustainability then we realize it's the most misused term you could find. It's used for the biggest greenwashing that we've ever seen in the world. Everything is sustainable. Obviously, Nestle produces sustainable water, yes. And they do exactly the opposite. So, how do we come up with these confusions? I think we we never look at, or we have difficulties looking at the different levels where we apply these terms. In Spanish we have two words for sustainability. One is sustentabilidad and one is sostenibilidad. Uh, and they have those two words, but hardly ever do I find a person who in Spanish could explain to me what the difference between the two is. But there is a difference. Because they are different words. So, it's as I said with liveliness and vitality. One refers more to the individual setting or to the specific setting. And one refers to the social or to the communal setting. So when we talk about sustainability, el sustento, which is sustentabilidad, means Whatever I start doing, I do in a way that it could be sustained, that it could continue. Yeah? Like, let's say I'm a carpenter and I build a nice table. If I want to make a living for my family, I should build the table in a way that in the future, when other customers come, I could build more tables the same way. I try to sustain my business. I would do it in a way that I use timber that is available, that my workshop is made to do these tables. Okay, this would be a sustained occupation. Sustentabilidad. But then when we talk about sustainability, we also refer to another realm. And that is the next question that this carpenter or his community and his clients will come up one day they will ask well does this table production help to improve the forest environment or does it reduce the forest environment when you only produce one or maybe ten tables 
that may not be the essential question. But when you develop this occupation further and one day you have a factory that produces 10,000 tables, it may become a very relevant question. So the foresight involved when you think about these dimensions, this would lead us into the realm of sustainability. It's like the potential of being sustained even under very different and unknown conditions because conditions change and we have no control of these conditions. Whatever could happen even though I cannot imagine what will happen would not destroy our livelihood but would rather improve it. In the end, when you think the process further, the idea comes up that whatever we do should, if it uses natural resources, and I think just about everything uses natural resources, it should use and assure those resources at the same time. It should improve them. You should always leave things behind a little better than they were before. Why? This is not just morale. <coughs> if we hadn't followed this principle in the world from the beginning on, we wouldn't exist. Because the world started with absolute chaos under very difficult conditions with volcanoes, storms, heat, intolerable conditions. In the beginning of this planet, temperatures could change from zero to 500 degrees in half an hour. No way to survive. Now we are six billion years later, in a very pleasant environment. We are complaining about some little changes in this environment, but in general, compared to what the world has gone through, this is extremely pleasant. This is pure luxury. So how has this luxury come about? It could only happen because the first living beings that occurred on Earth followed this principle of sustainability, of real deep sustainability, whatever they started doing, they added some little improvement of the resources and the environment to what they were doing. The first beings on earth were little bacteria. There are little bacteria that are still around nowadays. We have them everywhere and they are still determining much of what happens today and they were the ones who brought this principle of sustainability and also of usability into the world because they started I would say they started commerce on earth they started offering something in exchange 
And that became a method that brought about our complex, vital world in the end. So I will talk about these mechanisms and how we can recognize and apply them today because we've come together to talk about forests, about forest destruction, about how forest can be restored, how it could even be restored after total destruction, whatever total destruction is. And I think it's easiest if we go down to the very basic and very old mechanisms that have, from the beginning on, created the situation that we are in. When you look at things that way, they become a little easier to understand, I think. And the more difficult questions uh, can possibly be answered. I heard a question arose last night at the bonfire that how can humans be so stupid? Yeah. There are seven billion of them and, and yet they are producing so much nonsense in the world. What can we do? How can we change this stupidity? Um, I don't know if we have to change anything. I have no idea if it needs change or what change really is. But I can look at the basic mechanisms of what happens. And I'll try to explain those and I'll be in Estonia for two weeks and I asked myself when I came here what do I want to achieve? I thought, well, let's maybe try penetrate and understand these issues but then also practice them and show how it works. I would like to, somehow we will have to find a mechanism to do this, but I would like to somehow find a way that whatever we talk about now, we could also within these two weeks start practicing somewhere and take it into the normal life. Because otherwise it's not worth very much. Um, why may we not have to change very much? Because I believe that if a little bacteria can create a whole world, then man, every single man or woman, should certainly also be able to create the world they want to create. I would find it very strange that if we know a bacteria can do it, we would assume a human being could not do it. But then very often I meet people who say, oh, we are so impotent, we can't. There's no way. But you know how many bacteria live in one human being? who share our, their intelligence and their capabilities with us, several kilos, 
um, ten years ago, I did research on the number of microorganisms we had in our, in our body, and there was very little known about it, very little. And the most advanced scientists, they came up with fantastic numbers, and it looked to me like those were probably true. Before they had thought about some million microorganisms, and then all of a sudden they talked about four billion microorganisms in a human body. So I've been telling people we have four billion microorganisms in our body. But in the past five years, five to ten years, there's been a lot of research on this. There's a revolution happening in research at the moment, and people are learning about microorganisms. And today the number is not four trillion, it's 40 trillion, ten times more. They had this, they made this little mistake counting. You know, counting is very difficult. Well, counting is very difficult when you don't see. Because humans, scientists especially, they think that only what you see is true. But this is a very good example of showing that when you only refer to what you see, well, you simply negate all that you don't see. And we have known for at least 120 years now that most in the world is below the surface. It's not what we see. Physics will tell you some very good chemists will tell you. And I will tell you about some of the research that has lately been done on the most important of all elements that we have around us. The element that is most related to liveliness, vitality, sustainability. And that is the least known substance in the world. The least understood substance in the world is water. Let's look a bit into what the water reality is. But we started out with the microorganisms. There are 40 trillion in every person. Some scientists claim that women have more microorganisms than men. I cannot assure that. I have seen them making so many mistakes counting that <laughs> I'm not sure. But it's an interesting fact. Could be. Uh, and I could understand a certain logic behind this. But why could it be important? Let's look at it from another point of view. When I studied natural sciences, medicine, biology, it was said that the most advanced of our natural sciences is genetics. And certainly, in the past 40 years, everything was explained in terms of genetics. Wherever you look, wherever there's a problem or an issue, they related somehow to genetics. 
cancer genetics. Yeah? There's no proof for it, but everything is related to it. Um, races, I say, how oh, genetics. Yeah? What are genetics? Well, the way we have defined genetics in these decades, or it only started about 100 years ago, the first research was done on this, is that there is information in the cells. We know the mechanics of this information. We know about DNA. And that this information determines from birth on by an original constellation that we are born with, determines what happens in life. That's what I was told 40 years ago. I became member of a little group of geneticists and we were in this study group where we were only five or six in the faculty. Very few people went into it in depth. And it was extremely interesting. And we had a wonderful professor. The result for me today is, when I look back, 90% of what we learned 40 years ago is not valid today. It was not true. It was again an assumption that was made observing the surface. At that time we did not look deep enough. It was not possible. No scientist looked deep enough into the matter. But also, I also remember the many questions we had when we discussed these things. We spent more time discussing than anything else and the questions are still the same. And science had not con has not contributed to solving those questions over time. So there was something wrong about the approach, something misleading about the approach. Today that I work a lot with microorganisms, I know some hints of why this could be misleading. Because when you now combine the idea of genetics and the knowledge you have about microorganisms in the body, think one step further. Every microorganism has a genetic code. So how many genetic codes do we have in our body? We have maybe four trillion cells in our body with four trillion genetic codes, but we have 40 trillion microorganisms and we must assume there are even more small living structures in the body that also have their genetic codes. And some scientists nowadays assume that 99% of all the genetic codes in the human body are not the human genetic codes, they are the genetic codes of other living beings. Now let's play a bit around with numbers. 99% belong to other living beings, but of this 1%, 
that is human, 99-point-some percent is equal amongst all humans. You and you and you and mine genetic codes are 99-point-some percent identical. There is no variation. The variation is only in less than 1%. So this makes 1% of 1%. That's 0.01% where our identity is somehow determined. So who are we? Now let's go to the next mechanisms. Are these genetic codes really important? Do they determine who we are and what we do? Forty years ago I was told, yes, absolutely. Today we know, no, there's epigenetics. They are determined from the outside. They are just potentials. And there are some humans who have some potentials that others don't have. But these potentials only have an important importance when they are triggered from outside or they are triggered by certain learning or by certain experience. So again, it's not us. It depends on the surroundings. The surroundings include for example, the microorganisms in our tummy. They include the many living beings around us of which we, again, only see a very, very small part. The biomass of insects in the world is a hundred thousand times higher or so than the biomass of humans. They all fly around with their genetic codes. A tree is not just a tree. A tree by itself is a physical structure. A tree, if you were left alone, if you plant a tree in sterilized sand, you know what happens? No way it could live. A tree lives because it is associated with an average of 50 kilometers of mycelia, a fungi network. And the fungi network cannot survive and supply the tree if it is not associated with an enormous community of microorganisms. We don't even have the numbers. We don't know the numbers of beings that are involved in making a tree live. We have no idea. When the first people in the West started listening to Eastern spiritual leaders, and those spiritual people told them, we are all one. They found it was very strange and something, a very special way of looking at the world.
I believe that if we take our own insight serious, if we take the science that we use, I don't know if that's the best science, but it's the one we know, if we just take that serious, the only conclusion we can come up with nowadays is that we are all one. And we can only define ourselves as part of the whole. If we don't define ourselves as part of the whole, we simply miss the essence of our existence. If we were cut off this whole, we'd have no chance to live. We would die like any tree in a sterilized piece of sand. There are many experiments going on where doctors, for example, they try to make people survive in sterilized environments and they still continue those experiments at the cost of many lives. But we see all over, it doesn't work. Those people die. And many people are being killed at the moment just for the sake of trying to maintain the dogma that man is independent. Man is the crown of creation. Yes, we are the crown of creation. We are about the most sophisticated thing that has been created. But the crown isn't worth anything if it's not on the head of a king and if the king is not made king by the people and not respected by the people. You have to be part of everything. We are part of everything. So the main issue that we'll be talking about is how do we regain the connection with the world that brought us to where we are today. What has happened in these last few thousand years is somehow Human existence has accelerated following a certain ideology, accelerated like trying to push the human out, out of the system, out of this, what we call nature, out of the context, trying to find out how far out can we go. They're trying even to go to the moon and to Mars and... But I have the impression that behind us there's this rubber band that we are stretching and stretching and stretching and we will eventually be pulled back. This happens very fast. I mean, uh, as a boy I worked with slingshots and once you get some tension on the slingshot it can be very fast. So we have two tendencies in the world at the moment. One tendency is to go to the extreme, push man further out, still further out. This tendency is being financed very strongly. There are very strong research groups behind it. 
um, it's the what's called the singularity movement. They even name it to what it is. You heard about the singularity movement. Singularity, meaning man can be single. Man lives his singularity to the extreme. You know who finances the singularity research? Google. It's fully Google financed. Founder, the head of it, Ralph Kurzweil in California. He's a Google man. And they tried to really bring this ideology to the extreme. I talked to two American philosophers lately and we talked about this and, and they smiled and they said, no, it's already over. Said It's already collapsing. People in Google already know. Let's hope so. But the public hasn't realized yet. People are still, many people are still fascinated. And when someone like Elon Musk starts talking about fantastic plans, oh, people like those fantasies. Mm. Yeah? But they're fantasies. Come on. I've met these people. They all follow this same old strategy, strategy that I believe is now about 5,000 years old, of singling out man, making him independent from the rest of the world but we are not independent we cannot be independent and we have very clearly seen that when we do that we not only destroy the environment we destroy ourselves so when we look at the history of destruction in the world there is the same pattern all over it's been repeated over thousands of years. And the pattern in its very simplest expression is first you go out and you destroy the forests and then you destroy the human forests, the human communities, the human societies, the human cultures and all that belongs to it. And this way we have a Mediterranean region that is all desert and where human societies are in the most destructive state that one could imagine. We are deserts beginning to build in regions as vast as the Amazon. In the western United States that was pure forest and so on and so forth. It's always the same pattern. In the end, it's killing people, killing societies. And humans have become very, very sophisticated in all those practices. I believe that war starts in school. The very essence of what school is, is a concept of war against children, against the natural potential. School has two roots, a father and a mother. The mother is the church, the father is the military. They 
made schools. And we apply that concept, a very old and overcome concept, to our children today. We force them to give up their natural creativity to march like soldiers all over the world. When I came to Yucatan, there was no public schooling of any relevance in the villages. Schools existed, but children were, fr uh, were free. Parents could decide to send their children to that school or not. And children were mostly curious to go to school at one moment, and after half a year, after a few months, or sometimes after a few years, they just came home and said, no, I will not go to school anymore. Why? Mm. Makes no sense. Education happened at home, in the street, with the neighbors. And it was wonderful education. Young girls at the age of 12 knew how to run a household and how to care for the family, including all the cooking and everything. And they loved doing it. They were creative doing it. And young boys at the age of 15 knew all the plants and all the trees and the whole history of the management of the environment. And their fathers and grandfathers, when I accompanied them out in the forest and asked them somewhere out in the forest about a specific tree, they would be able to tell me the story of that specific tree. They said, ah, it was 21 years ago that I did such and such thing here. And yeah, that was knowledge. That was deep knowledge. And then about 30 years ago, they started forcing people to send their children to school. It's very difficult because school doesn't make much sense to the children. So what they do nowadays is they pay the parents only if their children go to school. The parents are bribed to send their children to school. And the children come to my farm and say, Can you help us get out of school? I said, yes. That's one of the reasons why on my farm we are beginning to establish a school. So, you do a forest school. And fortunately, I checked the laws, it's very easy. You can just create a school in Mexico and you can register it and then it's a school. And if I follow certain rules, then I will even get a little bit of subsidy for my school. So I will do that. I'm just building, finishing the buildings, and then I know the children will come on their own because they are looking for something that makes sense. And to them, working with the soil and with the trees makes sense. They are the first ones to realize that a restored forest is precious. They realize this much easier than an adult. I have small children, two, three years old, who their parents tell me, we have to go and visit you at least once a week because during the whole week, the children tell us, let's go to Chancabergia. 
they absolutely want to go. They know what's real. They know what the importance of restoration is. You don't even have to teach them. It's good enough not to send them to school. So, that's where the real task lies. And when you draw conclusions from this small children's experience to who we are and what we are doing, then this leads us to the need of talking about what philosopher Ivan Illich called de-schooling society. We need to very urgently de-school ourselves, get rid of all the wrong assumptions that keep us in the dogma, in the ideology, in this singularity dream that is not true and make us again part of the whole, of what we call nature, which is the first misconstruction of all. There's no nature and us. We are nature. It's the world. How could we separate nature from the world? This is all one. So this we could call like chapter number one, the basics. Those are the assumptions we have to deal with. The references. And when we come to more practical issues, we should be very careful always to check our assumptions before we go into practical work, before we want to organize action. Because we have gone to school, we have habits, we are very much indoctrinated by the media, by the books, by the history of a few thousand years to do what we're doing. And all people are intelligent. And those who have led us into this situation, they were not less intelligent than we are. So there are mechanisms that seduce intelligent people into doing what they don't really want to do. And this can happen to any of us. We have to be very careful about Before anything, we have to look at who am I? Am I really in the position, in the capacity to live what I think is right, correct, decent, valuable to live? Or is it not? very easy to oversee things, especially when society 
expects you to oversee things. When they falsify history, they falsify all sorts of stories. And they want you to believe all those fake stories. There's only one big danger in people. This danger is what is usually called laziness. Laziness that would make us choose comfort instead of speaking up, instead of doing what we really want to do. It's always been described in history. Old tales and everything, they deal with the counterposition of laziness and initiative. When you ask a Mayan, what is life about? What's most important in life? They would give you two possible answers. And usually the two answers come up together. And one is to be active, just to be active. And the other is se tranquilo, be quiet, balanced. I have a meeting with my people on the farm every morning at seven. And it's always the same ritual when I come to the meeting with my cup of tea. And I ask the first ones who sit there, how are you? Tranquilo, tranquilo, all quiet. And then when they hear about what the Western, what, what the Westerners do, and their visitors coming, and I tell them, well, these come because they are on holiday. They are on a vacation. Uh-huh. What's that? It's a very strange concept. They would never really understand. And once somebody heard that when you're employed somewhere, you have to ask for vacations. So he proposed we should have vacations amongst the group. So I started discussing that. And then I asked people, well, if you had the vacation, what would you do? Oh, I would go and work. Because <laughs> you only need a vacation when you're unhappy with your work. And the Mayan would never do a work that made him unhappy. Even if it made him poor. Rather poor and happy than with money and doing something you don't like to do. That means being active.
being active is living your activity, the things you like. So in the morning when we have our meetings and I tell them what needs to be done, I ask for comments. Very often there are no comments. Mostly there are no comments. They smile, okay, we understood these things need to be done and I distribute the tasks somehow if they need to be distributed. And then I go and they stay for a little while. And then typically, five minutes later, somebody shows up and says, no, I would rather do it another way. and tells me that he has already discussed this with the others and, yeah, we could do it another way. And usually that's perfect. Usually it's even the better solution. Yeah. There's this very, very strong inner belief or inner assurance that you should only do what you believe is the right thing to do. And that has to be practiced at all levels of life. And one can practice that in the smallest things. Like when a Mayan works and then in the afternoon, all of a sudden, two hours before the end of work, he feels that somehow his tummy is not so well. Little tummy ache. Well, in the West we would usually say, well, little tummy ache is not so bad, finish your work and then you can go to bed, or whatsoever. A Mayan comes to me and says, My tummy aches, I go home. There's no discussion about it. If my tummy sends me the message that this is not the moment to continue working, then I will not work. And even if the work plan was very hard and it was creating a problem, mm -mm. That's more important. Tummy first. Most Westerners, when they are confronted with that sort of thinking, say, I can't work with these people. How can you organize these people? But then on the other side, it makes them very independent and sometimes you get tremendous efforts when they feel they are really behind something and they fully go into it. And they're very fast learners. I teach them something new and they and they feel they are in the condition to to work with that. And they are much faster than most Westerners. Okay.
So there we are with people. I mentioned, thank you, that <laughs> when you bring people together with this attitude, that any group of people, small group, can solve any issue they confront. Now we have two important aspects that make that possible. One is, if we are part of the whole, if we are connected with everything, obviously we have access to everything. Which means we have access also to all the knowledge that might be needed to solve a situation. And the second aspect is the personal one. We need the right attitude. We need to wish to be active. We cannot do it from a position of laziness. We can only do it from the position of believing in ourselves and really acting for ourselves. So if we have fulfilled those two conditions, then the next question is how do we organize to really make this happen? Because one of the consequences of understanding these things is we will never be able to do things alone. Everything happens in conjunction. And the best conjunction is obviously active cooperation. The conjunction is there anyhow, yeah? because we are connected. But when you when we create the conditions that this conjunction could become an active cooperation, everybody contributes and sends his, her energies into a shared objective, and become, we can become so incredibly powerful, so incredibly powerful, that we realize that we are the only potential superpower on this earth. There is no superpower like this one. Forget the empire. Forget the American tanks and aircraft carriers and bombs and rockets and so on. Even they will not be as strong as the combined initiative of seven, seven billion people. The question is, well, why do these seven billion people not cooperate? If they truly did, then they would probably do what every single one of you wants to do. Live in good harmony 
tranquilos. With the environment, with their society, expressing their culture. So how do we go about this? How can we step out of this singularity, nonsense, ideology into again becoming ourselves and cooperating with each other? That is the real quest. It's very difficult to answer because we have to overcome many, many patterns. Much of what we have learned to be able to deal with the answer. So I like talking in images and I start, I like learning from images. And I take as an image for what we want to achieve the best image I can find, the best example I can find. The best example is the most successful community I can find in the world. And the most successful community I know of, you can correct me, is the forest. The forest that is made, composed of individuals that have the same origin as we do. We have a shared great-great-great-grandfather somewhere, little bacteria. And the forest has managed to survive under many, many extreme conditions for about a thousand times longer than humans have. Depending on where you start defining the forest as a forest, we don't really know when was that. But to me the principles of the forest you can find in many of nature's communities, even underwater, in the sea even in microorganism communities. So, ooh, a crane. Was it a crane? Uh, Grey heron. Grey heron, okay. <laughs> so, but let's look at the forest, because they are obviously the most successful communities. They're most successful in having managed to occupy just about all kinds of land, recuperate barren land after the ice has been on them for thousands of years. They have managed to establish communities close to the water, far from the water, and they've managed to contribute to the larger environment. Always. Wherever we have forest, the forest fulfills this principle of sustainability that you should not only sustain yourself 
but create sustainable conditions for the world as such, more sustainable conditions. So we can look at the mechanisms used by the forest. How does the forest do it? And maybe from there we can deduce how we could change our human society and our human behavior to be able to achieve something similar or the same. It's always good to have an example because we talked about schools. And uh, one of my criticisms of school is that they don't really recognize how people learn. The uh, general dogma in school is that you have a knowing person in front and you can somehow transmit that person's knowledge into the heads of those who, who sit on their chairs and, and listen. But that's not how people learn. How do people learn? They learn from experience and from example. They copy. First of all, we copy. Look at the little baby. Babies are just incredible observers and they copy anything. Once they have copied, they try and they vary a little bit and they play with their newly gained capacities and all of a sudden they may discover a little variation or something that may work even better than what they have seen and they'll be proud of it it's all about learning from example experimenting trying and once you have gone through that you want to transmit what you have achieved. You want other people to realize. There's nothing like a proud child who has discovered some new capability and look at this. And we are still those children. All people learn this one. So we can go by example. We can go by playing around with what we find working. If the forest community in itself follows the same principle, how can we find out if they and how they do it? Let me take another, another angle. Who of you knows what trees are made of? What composes a tree? What else? Where does it all come from? From the earth? Hmm. 
I was told also in school that it's all from the earth. And I grew up with the earth and I was very close to the earth and I could believe that the earth is very strong to create all sorts of things. Yes. Found that quite fascinating. But then one day looking at a big tree, I thought, well, big tree, if you really got all your substance from the earth, where is the big hole that you got it from? And I didn't find the hole. Strange. Somebody told me, oh, that's alchemy. You just told me alchemy doesn't exist. Ah, well, but then when you don't have an explanation, then, then it exists. I asked my professors. Huh. To be true, none of those so knowledgeable professors ever gave me a real answer. Never. They gave me formulas, all sorts of formulas. But the way they looked at the formulas did not really explain. It was not the answer. And hardly anybody realizes that over 99.5% of what makes a tree is only from the air and water. Only air and water. And only 0.5% have some other origin. Look at the formulas. It's all CO2. There's a bit of C, a lot of O, and a lot of H. Hydrogen. So we cannot be sure what comes from the air and what comes the water from the water, but the two together, they compose just about everything. When you look at the most sophisticated molecule in a tree, which is probably chlorophyll, you have a tremendous geometric structure, beautiful snowflake-like geometric structure. And go through the structure and you will find H and O and O and H. And then somewhere in the center you will find one little atom of magnesium. And that is all that comes from the earth. One atom. And it makes the most sophisticated molecule and the most important molecule for the tree. Because without chlorophyll, it would not work. One day I looked at the most important molecule for the human body. It's hemoglobin. The blood. And then I compared the structure of that molecule to that of chlorophyll. Do you know they look just about the same? And there's one difference. Yeah. Instead of 
this little atom of magnesium, you have one little atom of iron. That's all. And one is the vital molecule for humans and for mammals. And one is the vital molecule for trees. So it all comes from the air. Most of the water comes directly from the air also. And then we have these few atoms that found their way into the tree. And really the biggest, the biggest secret is how do these atoms find their way into the tree? We know that iron and magnesium are spread over the world. They are somewhere. They are in the rocks. They are wildly spread in the environment. How did they find their way into the tree, just into the center of this little atom, if everything is only hydrogen and oxygen and a bit of carbon? How does that happen? Do you know? Who brings them there? Do they, have, do they have legs? Do they walk up there? Do they fly? How do they get there? Sounds like a children's question. But children are very often the best ones to ask questions. And, and if we can't answer children's questions, then we usually come to some very crucial aspect. Well, there is a mechanism, obviously, because the trees get what they want and what they need. So, imagine there we have the trees and we have the ground and somewhere in this ground, somewhere around here, the magnesium and the other little atoms that the tree might need are spread. And the tree has a network, every single tree has a network of approximately 50 kilometers of mycelia. So what does the tree have to do? It has to send a message out through the 50 kilometers of mycelia. I need an atom of magnesium. Magnesium wanted. Now the next question is, why would anybody respond? Because obviously there is a response. They get some revenue. What is the revenue? Yes, exactly. So the tree needs to offer something. Yeah. It offers payment. And the tree has a currency. In the forest they work with a currency. And this currency is the most precious substance in the world, maybe. Because it is the currency that has paid for the composition of all the forests in the world. The most successful currency you can imagine. It's sugar. The tree offers sugar. And the tree is nothing but a quite rigid structure of a trunk and branches and roots the roots have no capability for mining. Some people believe that roots have a capability for mining and to dig out what they need. No, 
They can't. They only offer a structure to connect to the mycelium. And they offer the mycelium sugar at the point of the root. And the mycelium takes some of the sugar and sends some of the sugar further ahead to its slaves or cooperators or however you want to call them, the little microorganisms, who again, for being paid by a bit of sugar, would run out and get the atom of, mice, of magnesium, transport it into the system, bring it to the tip of the root of the tree, and the water stream in the tree will carry this atom to exactly where it is needed, and it will flow back, taking some sugar along, depositing the sugar at the tip of the root to pay for the next order. It's an economy. It's a very basic economic system. Give and take. And this way, trees are able to relate to their environment over vast vast distances. And if there is no magnesium around the tree, but the mycelium has grown to a distance of a few hundred meters, they could build a tree with magnesium from a few hundred meters away. And who knows, maybe even over larger distances. Because it's now been proven that trees communicate over kilometers. And obviously, you don't only need the monetary system, you don't need just the mechanisms of the economy, but the economy has to be driven by communication. It doesn't work without communication. If you cannot send out the message, I need magnesium, then you will never get magnesium. So you have to communicate. Forests are communicators. And they communicate so much that there is a constant chatting. They communicate everything in the forest. They use many languages. So I come to my next conclusion. To be able to restore the forest, we have to start learning a foreign language. And the most important foreign language that we can learn nowadays, I think, is the language of the trees. It's a language. And we are beginning to learn that language. There are scientists seriously beginning to analyze the language of trees. I was lucky to have a professor who, in my final exams, asked me, how do trees communicate? Not many scientists at that time asked that question. He was extraordinary. He's a very special man. Most of what I am telling you, he would probably not have mentioned at that time. 
but he understood that there was communication going on. He was one of the first researchers about pheromones. Pheromones were discovered when there was a real need to understand the communication between insects and trees. So, my exam was very much about trees communicating and insects communicating with the means that we know by light, radiation and smell. That was the most advanced mechanism or the most advanced knowledge of communication mechanisms at that time. Today I think we have to assume that there are many, many more mechanisms. And some are probably very similar to language, frequency-based mechanisms, vibrations of some kind. A mycelium can carry vibrations. The air can carry vibrations. We know that trees, when you hack into a tree, it's been measured that the surrounding trees within minutes react and they stop competition. Trees usually compete for water, for nutrients and so on. And they stop competition and they start supporting the wounded tree within minutes. And they send the substances this tree needs to heal his wounds the substances that are needed to increase the production of resin. That is very fast communication. How long do humans take to notify, oh, René, you are a specialist. How long do humans take to f notify the Red Cross and have, a, and have your car come? Yeah, and then he still has to go and let's say half an hour or something and yeah. Yeah, trees can do it faster. Yeah. It's incredible. So, not that slow. We're just beginning to understand that language. The next step would be to know how do we talk to trees? How do we combine our efforts with trees? If I want to restore a forest somewhere, how do I assure that I'm not working against the interest of the trees, but with the interest of the tree? Yes. Yeah. 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 
Helen told me about a language today that she uses. Singing has been used over thousands of years to communicate with trees. Singing is the language that is not directive. It doesn't give an order or it doesn't describe a very specific condition, but it expresses the general being and attitude, many, many more things. It comes from deep within, or can connect to something deep within. And the deeper you go into yourself, the higher the possibility to connect to the inner being of a tree, which gives you the chance of really communicating with a tree. Once I was asked, that time I was traveling a lot in Latin America and I was working with many different farming communities throughout the continent and one day I was asked to please come to Venezuela and they asked me, okay, please, we need a little workshop, we need some support from you and so I went. And they picked me up at the airport, and right from the airport, I was tired, I thought they were going to take me to my hotel first, but no. They took me up into the mountains. We drove five hours till we came to a community. I had no chance to resist. And I was up in the mountain forests of Venezuela. I had never been there. I didn't know the language. I didn't even know where I was. And they brought me into a community assembly and the leaders of the community were sitting there and I had not much of an explanation. So I sat down and was happy to get a glass of water. We started talking. It was very interesting. And I talked to these people and at some moment I said, can we go out to the forest, can we have a look? And so we did a little forest walk and and after f three or four hours, I told them, hey, by the way, I'm hungry. Um, and they said, yeah, let's, we can go, we can go. So it was a very deep farewell from those people. I thought it was a very interesting visit. I liked being with them. I really enjoyed these hours. And sitting in the car, again, I asked the people, who had brought me there, hey, by the way, why did we go here? I had no idea. And they, I realized they were in an attitude of deep relief. They said, oh. I said, well, what happened? And they said, you know, we had this very deep crisis. This community had started opposing all the proposals of the environmental organizations of this area. 
and they had started closing themselves off from any of the environmental organization's activities. Basically, they were throwing us out of their communities. And through your conversations with them, they have now confirmed that we can cooperate again. Now, ask why? I didn't do anything about that. And they smiled and they said, No. You have reconnected. And I started wondering, really, how does this happen? It was certainly not because of what we talked about. It was just that at those times I was deeply connected to many indigenous communities and to their land. And when I talked to these people, I did not only talk some Spanish, I talked another language, a subconscious language, that had to do with the connection with or between people, between people of the land. I could only explain this by going deep enough in your communication. And you can only go deep in your communication if you go deep into your own being. And then connect to the real being of the other person. At that time, I was running a meditation center at home. We had a Zen meditation dojo. Whenever I was not traveling, I was in the dojo. And I carried this meditation along with me. You can meditate with people without having to sit down and meditate. I just... And later I realized that this can only work when you're in absolute harmony with yourself. There are other times when I realized that my deeper self is not really within me but besides me and I don't care for it enough. happens that I disconnect from myself, and then this, com this communication will not happen. So it all starts with really being ourselves, learning to connect deeply to who we are, and when people and I would say also trees, realize that you are what you say you are. When there's two complete coincidence between your actions, your beliefs and your doing, then that is the basic message that can create cooperation.
Because when that happens, there is no other choice but cooperation. Nobody would escape. People escape from cooperation, or they give up on cooperation when they don't trust. It's about being able to trust. You look into personal relationships, couple relationships, have become so complicated in modern times, but in the end, it all comes down to this one issue. If two people really trust each other, then the relationship will work. And if there's reason for mistrust or distrust somehow, then there's still work to be done. And then it's very difficult to cooperate. So concluding from that, we started with how do we communicate with trees. It's about how do we transmit to the trees that they can trust us again. After all that has happened. Why would a tree trust humans? Why would a tree not say, come on, they have destroyed and destroyed and destroyed. Let's rather wait till they destroy themselves and then we have a better chance to grow again. We can wait. Trees have more time than humans. How do we build trust? Let's make a little break. <laughs>